John Ziegler here, excited to announce that we have our first sponsor of the Individual One podcast. Now, as you'd probably expect, I do not do endorsements unless I actually use the product. And I just started using this one. It's Imbue CBD. If you're a golf fan like I am, and you've probably read about how CBD is all the rage with all sorts of respected people raving about the various positive physical aspects of CBD, especially among people like me who are, let's face it, starting to feel the impact of aging. Recently, I started trying multiple products from Imbue CBD, and I can already tell that, among other things, I am for sure sleeping more soundly. And my wife says she loves the Imbue CBD facial cream, although, to be honest, she doesn't need it. In case you haven't heard, CBD is the powerful extract from the hemp version of cannabis. And while it may offer many of the health benefits of marijuana, there's no high, it's legal, and doesn't require a prescription. The source I trust for CBD is Imbue CBD. This is a top-of-the-line product and classy in every way. Consequently, Imbue CBD is not inexpensive, but I got you a discount to explore all the many ways CBD might be able to help you. Go to ImbueCBD.com and get 25% off when you enter John Z. Again, enter John Z for 25% off at IMBUECBD.com. That's ImbueCBD.com, promo code John Z. This is episode number 103 of the Individual One podcast. For the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. And I am your host, John Ziegler. We are broadcasting bravely from Los Angeles, California, distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the critically acclaimed program which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a conservative perspective. Because unfortunately, no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him. And unlike the corporate media, we here at the Individual One Podcast have most definitely not been compromised or co-opted. Welcome to the program. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. And follow us on Twitter at Individual One Pod. That's at Individual, the number one pod. The number one thing that this podcast promises you is a clear-eyed fact and logic-based view of what is going on related to the presidency of Donald J. Trump. Now, during this coronavirus crisis, this has made this particular podcast really unique. I realize that that's redundant, but the word unique is often misused, but truly is a unique situation because so much of what we have been hearing and seeing with regard to analysis and reporting on the coronavirus is seen through the prism of whether or not you like Donald Trump or whether or not you despise Donald Trump. Correct. That is an absolute basic reality. And I think it is, in a very significant way, it is causing almost all of the analysis to be at least, if not totally biased. Correct. That goes for the right wing. Correct. And for the left wing. Correct. And that's part of what makes this podcast valuable, because I'm in a very, very, very maybe unique situation. I loathe Donald Trump. I think he has done a horrendous job when it comes to handling the coronavirus uh, situation, largely because he's making it up as he goes and not. However, I also believe that his opponents are completely overplaying their hand and that they may, may, we don't know yet, the dust is still a long way from settling, 
may actually be setting him up for re-election. Correct. Because the one thing I know about his opposition, liberals in America, is that they will always, always, always overplay their hand. Correct. And that Trump has been able to benefit from that since the very beginning of his presidential run way back in late 2015 and obviously into 2016 when he beat Hillary Clinton. And so it has been incredibly frustrating for me as an anti-Trump conservative to see all of my views on the virus and how to handle it and the fallout of it seen through somehow this prism that I might be supporting Donald Trump. I think that's incredibly instructive of what is happening here with regard to narratives and everyone choosing a narrative that they like. Facts be damned. In fact, that's what we're going to entitle this podcast. Everyone is picking their own virus narrative and facts don't really matter. Even when we get new facts, we don't go back to adjust the narrative because everyone wants to believe whatever it is makes them feel better. And if you're a pro-Trump person, it's one direction. And if you're an anti-Trump person, it's another direction. Everyone has lost their damn minds. And forgetting politics for a moment, although politics is part of this, here's what basically has happened with the coronavirus. We made panicked decisions first. That's what we did first especially here in California. We made panic decisions first. Then we find the truth out later. And by the time those decisions have already been made, especially when they were as dramatic as these were, everyone is invested. And when people get invested in a narrative and when people get invested in making sure previous decisions made in a panic are validated, look out because the truth does not matter at that point. It doesn't matter what new facts you find. It doesn't matter how much the original narrative was false. It doesn't matter how much your presumptions on which you base these panic decisions were faulty. And we're learning more and more, almost almost on an hourly basis, about how much we did not really understand what was going on when many of these decisions were made. And look, I am somebody who uh, I'm human, like everybody else. No one likes to be wrong. I've acknowledged when I've been wrong. I was wrong uh, that I thought we would not uh, exceed the deaths in Italy, even though we have six times the population of Italy. But I, I still didn't think we would have the gross total death numbers that would exceed Italy. That has now happened. I thought it, at the beginning that we might be able to beat the, the swine flu. That didn't happen. But I'll tell you what. Those numbers are still going to look far, far, far closer to reality than the people who told you at the beginning of this that over 2 million Americans were going to die and then adjusted that to 240,000 Americans were going to die. Uh, and, and those people are supposedly the experts. I, I, I'm, a, I'm becoming more and more of the belief that there are no real experts in this situation because it's unprecedented. That doesn't mean we don't listen to science. That doesn't mean that I, I'm for sure not anti-science. Uh, that, that is the opposite of what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that you have to understand people's biases. You have to understand the prison through which they are looking at things. You have to understand the uniqueness of the circumstances. You also have to not forget about common sense, which is what has happened here in a lot of ways. So before we get into the details of how we have learned so much that should adjust the original narrative, 
upon which so many of these decisions were made. Here's a First of all, a, a statistical review of where we are with regard to the coronavirus. Worldwide, there are now over 2.6 million confirmed cases, over 181,000 deaths. Spain and Italy, which has been the worldwide epicenter up until New York exploded, they are still struggling and they are slow to see their numbers fade, but they have clearly stabilized. Uh, the United Kingdom has been hit really hard. They have one of the worst death rates in comparison to confirmed cases in the world. They have 133,000 confirmed cases and 18,000 deaths. In comparison, Canada has 39,000 confirmed cases and 1,800 deaths. Australia continues to be an outlier on the other side of this. Of course, they're literally on the other side of the world. They're going into fall as opposed to going into summer. They've had 6,600 cases, only 74 deaths. Mexico, 9,500 cases, 857 deaths. Sweden, which is a country that has gotten a lot of focus because of their highly unusual decision to take a relaxed view of this, they have 16,000 confirmed cases, but almost 2,000 deaths. Now, that is a very high ratio uh, with regard to deaths and confirmed cases, and there are all sorts of apocalyptic uh, predictions uh, regarding Sweden, which I, this goes to the theme of this podcast episode. Is that because that's reality, or is that because the so-called experts are invested in that happening? I mean, Sweden, it, it's, it, we're getting into a, a very close to a very sick place here where I, I am seeing constantly, and, and let's be clear, Twitter is a cesspool, but Twitter uh, has impact. Uh, I see so many people, even, even legitimately credible people, who if you read between the lines, and the media is absolutely guilty of this, they seem to be rooting hard, hard for deaths in Sweden. Correct. Uh, almost the, the, the two places where the news media really wants death are Sweden and Florida. Correct. Boy, do they want deaths in Florida because they'd so badly want to prove that not locking down everything and allowing people to have a little bit of fun uh, is going to come back to haunt uh, with regard to death rates. But uh, Sweden... I believe is still a very open question on a number of levels. Number one, it's we're not even through the worst of this yet. Uh, you know, there are predictions now that Sweden somehow Stockholm is going to get 600,000 new cases by the 1st of May, which, OK, fine. That seems unbelievable to me. But all right. If that's what happens, that would ha that's what happens. That would you would assume would mean many, many thousands of deaths that would be connected to that. Uh, but I'm someone who believes we're not going to be able, able to even know for sure which decisions were proper and which were not. Forget about weeks. Forget about months. We're probably not going to know for a year or so because there are so many different factors. And deaths are only one factor here. And that's maybe been my biggest break from the conventional wisdom here. Deaths matter. Yes, death Death absolutely matters. It is horrible when people die. This thing is very serious. It has been horrendous in lots of areas of the world, and in especially the New York area here in the United States. But death is not the only matrix that determines how this should be handled. There are hundreds of other data points that are also relevant. Death is one of them. It might be the most important, but it's not the only one. Now, interestingly, you know which country has the highest death rate 
per capita in the world? You probably don't because the news media has given zero attention to this. It's Belgium. Belgium has 42,000 confirmed cases and 6,200 deaths in a country that has a very small population. And I found this fascinating from the narrative perspective because the media is always trying to figure out, uh, okay, uh, if someone has a high death rate, what's the reason we want that to be? And if they have a low death rate, what's the reason we want that to be? Because they have a narrative that they are already deeply, deeply invested in. Belgium presents a problem because Belgium didn't shut down late. Belgium didn't shut down in a soft or relaxed way. Belgium hasn't done uh, you know, small amounts of tests. They've done plenty of tests. So those are, the, those are the normal culprits that the news media will focus on. Aha, you, you have deaths because you didn't shut down early enough. You didn't shut down tightly enough. You didn't test enough. No, no, you can't do that with Belgium. So uh, you know what they've decided? <laughs> I did some research on this this morning. I love this. They've decided, get this, folks. The news media has decided this is a full this is why their narrative is foolproof. They can always find an escape hatch. Their explanation for Belgium is, you know what? Belgium is just so damn honest about how many people have actually died. See, they're the ones that are telling the truth because there's all these hidden coronavirus deaths. Now, going back to Sweden, and I've done a little bit of research on this, but apparently Sweden, in, in addition to being uh, having a quote-unquote relaxed view of how to handle this, they also have a very liberal view of how they define a coronavirus death. So you could argue that their numbers are a little bit skewed because of that. I don't know. It's too early to tell. But the idea that you automatically presume that because somebody has a higher death rate, well, uh, none of the things that we want to be the truth uh, are evident there. So we've got to come up with something else. And that's going to be they're just more honest about their deaths. Uh, and this idea of a massive undercount of deaths makes no sense to me. None. I mean, I mean this is a, a situation where everybody in the world knows about the virus. Everybody in the world is focused on it. Everybody in, uh, in the medical profession is focused on it. Uh, the, uh, the, in this country, the, the recommendations, the CDC recommendations are very clear that essentially anybody who you think might have died of the coronavirus gets counted as a coronavirus death. So the, the, the notion that somehow there are the, the hundreds of thousands of uncounted uh, coronavirus deaths just makes no sense to me. Now, is it possible there's some? Sure. Uh, and I'm going to get to a New York Times story on this a little bit later that I found to be uh, bizarre an indication, again, of the theme of this podcast, which is everyone has a narrative. Facts be damned. We will find a way to justify that narrative, even if the facts change. Now, uh, let's go to some of the things that we've learned since uh, the last week when we last did episode number 102 of the podcast. I told you uh, when Donald Trump was holding on to hope that uh, hydrochloroquine was going to be a, a savior, not to believe him. And I, I could do that because I'm objective about Trump. I understand Trump. I understand that Trump views his life as being blessed, that somehow with him everything is magic and that it will all work out. And so when he's looking at anecdotal uh, uh, descriptions of what hydrochloroquine might have been able to do, he's seeing it through the prism of his experience. 
that it's all going to work out for him. And so he started to trumpet this as this savior. Fox News Channel embarrassingly did exactly the same thing because they're state-run media. And over and over, I mean, my God, it got so ridiculous that uh, I saw so many right-wing media sources claiming that the the rest of the media was censoring pro-hydrochloroquine news stories. I mean, this was a massive conspiracy to somehow prevent people from being saved. Well, we now have the first studies that seem to be legitimate with regard to hydrochloroquine's actual effectiveness, and guess what? It's zero. There's zero indication that hydrochloroquine actually works, that it did not beat the placebo effect, and that, in fact, as some people had warned at the time, it has negative a negative impact in other areas, specifically the heart, when people actually take it. Now, is it possible that in some isolated situations it might have been helpful? Uh, yeah, but it's no miracle cure, uh, and that is a complete bust. And in a rational world, <laughs> that should be devastating <laughs> to Donald Trump and his credibility, and uh, it should, in a rational world, cause his approval rating to sink uh, remarkably. I mean, here's a guy who put the prestige of the presidency on the line on numerous occasions to tell people to take a drug to save their lives that did not work and may have even had a negative impact on them. Really? Really? You cannot be serious. He did that. And it's one of many, many things he did that were totally wrong in his handling of this whole situation. Uh, bizarrely, I don't know that it's going to hurt him that much because I think among people who don't hate him, they see it as him trying to do his best under a very, very difficult set of circumstances. And of course, the bar for him is already incredibly, incredibly low. Correct. Uh, and, he, you know, let's face it, uh, people don't trust him to begin with. So he gets to lie whenever he wants to. Uh, um, but that, to me, is a scandal in and of itself. Now, there have been numerous other studies that have come out, many of which, and, and I'll be honest, I, I'm going to highlight them because they vindicate things that I've been telling you. Uh, I've been wrong on a few things, but I feel like I've been vindicated on a lot. Uh, not that the, any of my critics are going to give me any credit for this, but one of them uh, deals with the situation here in California. And I have told you uh, numerous times on this podcast that the situation here in California makes no sense. It makes no sense. The narrative has always been, well, um, you know, California is behind other places. We're behind New York by like two weeks or something. Uh, and that it didn't happen here first. And that Governor Newsom shut the state down early. And that's why our numbers have been so remarkably good, considering the fact that we have large cities and, uh, you know, a, a, a remarkably strong connection to China. That never made any sense to me. It never made any sense to me from an Oxum's razor perspective, from a common sense perspective, because we have an incredible connection to China in this state. And we also had numerous events early this year that if the virus had been spreading around, should have been essentially super spreaders. Well, we've learned several things in the last few days that 
dramatically substantiate my skepticism about the narrative surrounding California, which I have never believed uh, made any sense. I've I've believed from uh, anecdotal uh, stories that have been told to me, and I've I've relayed to you on the podcast that people in this area believe they had this as early as last November and December, and clearly into January and February. And there have been at least three studies in the last couple of days that back this up and should dramatically alter the narrative, not just for California, but for how the entire country and maybe the world should be looking at this. Let me go through them quickly. There were two antibody tests done in very different portions of the state of California. A Stanford link study did uh, a, a look at antibodies in Santa Clara, which is in the San Francisco area, and USC did one in Los Angeles uh, here in Southern California. And they found almost exactly the same thing. They found that lots and lots of people already have the antibodies including in many cases where they had no idea that they ever even had the virus. Now, I, I, have, I am incredibly hesitant to buy into news stories and studies that substantiate what I want to believe, because I am well aware of this inherent human bias. So I am actually, I'm probably the only commentator I know of who is less willing to believe something if it fits with what I want to believe, because I know this is an inherent bias of humanity. And so when these stories first started to come out, I kind of downplayed them a little bit because I thought, all right, uh, I don't want to run into a buzzsaw here. I, I want to believe this to be true because it's good news, not because it makes me right, although that's always helpful. Um, but But the reality is that uh, the, I was hesitant to jump on board here, and I'm still a little hesitant to jump on board because the numbers, while significant, are not that impressive. It's not like we're anywhere near uh, herd immunity here in California. It's not as if somehow we have nothing to worry about. The numbers, the percentages are really pretty small, but, but here's the significance of it. Number one, the number one significance is that we had this earlier than thought because you can't have a situation where uh, in late March and early April, you've got thousands and thousands of people who never even thought they had this, who have the antibodies if this thing hasn't been around for a long time, which is incredibly significant for understanding how to deal with this. That's, that's number one. Uh, number, number two, it means that the death rate as we now understand it, is much, much lower than had been presumed. That's really maybe the most significant thing, is that if these tests, and you have now two studies saying almost exactly the same thing in two different parts of the state, they're now projecting that the death rate here, while not at the level of the normal flu, is in the ballpark of the death rate of a normal flu. It's significantly higher. It's many times higher, but it's not multiple exponential points higher. Uh, I mean, it's less than 1%, and it might be significantly less than 1%, depending on uh, what the final numbers are. Now, 
there's a big problem. Here's another reason why I'm not ready to, to jump up and celebrate about uh, these two studies uh, out of uh, Stanford and USC. And this actually could theoretically be good news. But I am, I've done a little research on this, both anecdotally and uh, you know, through experts, and there's a lot of reasons not to have confidence in the antibody test. The antibody test seems to be highly unreliable. Let me tell you the anecdotal story first. Uh, I have a, a, a friend who's a very high-profile person, you, very famous person. You would know his name if I told you. And uh, he has a, a significant other who um, got the coronavirus. And uh, that before he knew that she had the coronavirus, uh, they were not socially distancing. So she gets the coronavirus, she quarantines, she tests positive, she recovers. He then gets sick. So logic, I mean, he has all the symptoms of the coronavirus. He then recovers and goes in to get an antibody test. And the antibody test is negative. Now, that makes no damn sense. And in fact, uh, when he got the test, the person giving him the test told him that they weren't really that confident in the reliability of the test, which, of course, then makes this notion. And I didn't get a chance to talk about this in the last episode that, that, that Dr. Fauci has this ludicrous idea of only allowing people back to work who have the papers to prove that they have the antibodies is even more ridiculous than previously thought. It's just flat out ridiculous. Uh, I mean, not only is it, you know, almost like uh, putting a, a Jewish star on people who don't have the papers, but it's not even accurate. You cannot be serious. And so this is part of the perfect storm here, because you know, it, 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 extrapolating this, it's possible that the Santa Clara and Los Angeles studies are actually underestimating how many people have the antibodies and are therefore immune. Now, USC is claiming that they got a fix to that problem. Uh, I have no way of knowing that's true or not. But these are, these are studies that are incredibly important. And if true, it goes to the idea that California had this way earlier than pres presumed. It destroys the narrative that Gavin Newsom is somehow a hero for shutting down the state early when, in fact, he shut down the state late. And I don't care that much about the politics of that. I mean, I don't like him at all politically. I'd love to see him brought down a little bit at least just so he stopped acting like a lunatic. But but I'm more concerned about what it means about how we should be handling this situation, because, as I have said numerous times, I keep saying it. If California had this back in January and, and there's more evidence I'm going to get to momentarily that suggests that we did, then how do you explain how do you explain California, a state where NBA games were going on, where NHL games were going on, where for the entire uh, month of February, including culminating on February 24th, we were having public, massive Kobe Bryant memorials where people were hugging and kissing each other constantly, where on, I believe it was March 8th, we have the Los Angeles City Marathon 
How can all of those uh, Disneyland is going on full bore at this time, jam packed? I was there twice in this period of time. There were plenty of Chinese people wearing masks. My wife and I thought, "What the heck is going on here?" Uh, so, so there are all sorts of things going on in California at this time period that should have caused an explosion if our understanding and the, the conventional wisdom of this virus is accurate. And it didn't happen. Thankfully, it did not happen. And there's no evidence it's ever going to happen now because all those events are long in, in the past. There's about a one to four week lag in the data. We are way past the lag in the data that, that would have indicated that anything like an explosion because of these events occurring when we didn't even know the virus was spreading would have happened. That would have been obvious from the data. But there's nothing in there. And now we learn just yesterday that guess what shocker here folks shocker california didn't come late california actually had the first death in the united states of america the first death and it happened in early february now i'm even skeptical about this news because it was kind of a fluke that they even figured this out this was from an autopsy so i i gotta believe that if we are able to prove that someone died in California in early February, again, all those events I just talked about occurred after the, uh, early February. And again, if someone dies in early February, that means they got it in January. You don't die instantaneously, right? So, it, so, so if someone is dying in February, that means it's here at least, at least in late January and has had a long time to spread um, but if we're able to find this out and prove it via an autopsy, my guess tells me that's not the only one, and it might not even be the earliest one. That there may have been deaths earlier that just were presumed to be the flu, uh, that were misidentified, that we weren't paying attention to this, and that California has actually had this in a very big way all the way through Jan from January and even theoretically earlier. Now, I'm not big into anecdotal stories because, you know, human beings are very flawed about this. And a lot of times human beings want to be part of a big story. But I got to tell you, I've been told by so many people that I know and that I have reason to trust that they and people close to them had these exact symptoms uh, back at the end of last year. And they even had reasons to be vulnerable because in at least three of the circumstances, they were uh, they had a connection to college campuses where there was a strong Chinese connection. So this is there's something to this. There is something to the timing of this. There's also another study which also dovetails with something that I have theorized about on this podcast. And I have no way of knowing just how credible this study is, but it's out of China. It's been widely reported. And their conclusion in this Chinese study is that there are multiple different strains of the virus and that the most lethal and the worst is currently in Europe. And that that, the theory goes, that might be the strain that has infected New York City and the surrounding areas. And that here in California and in the West Coast, the reason why we have not seen anywhere near the same kind of death rate is because we have a different strain of the virus. Now, that is still, I would put in the realm of speculation, but it's informed speculation. It's common sense. 
It's which we've completely lost all sight of in this, and it would make uh, it would it would it would allow us to understand what has happened here in a far more logical way. Uh, again, I don't know how true it is, but that is out there, and I wanted to share it with you. Now, the New York Times I referenced earlier has done an analysis. Uh, that indicates to them that deaths around the world, not so much here in the United States, uh, where we have the highest death count, we have the highest uh, confirmed case count, we have the highest amount of testing, but that there are places around the world where deaths are being undercounted. And their theory on this is that, and I think this is far too early to do this, but they're seeing that the number of people who have died in this con- in these countries uh, this year is higher than it would have been in previous years and in previous months. Now, I think that that is theoretically relevant and something that if we get more data, we should take a look at. But the idea that that is conclusive uh, or that is determinative or, or that is proof, well, come on, people. It's just flat out ridiculous. Uh, it is way too early to know that. There are plenty of other reasons when you dramatically change life. We are dramatically changing life as dramatically as we've ever changed it, at least since World War II. And so, therefore, we don't know what the implications of that are going to be. There are certainly plenty of explanations that might explain a gap in deaths that do not mean that somehow coronavirus deaths in particular are being undercounted. I don't know whether or not they're being undercounted. Some people think they're being overcounted. I hate this debate. I hate the fact that we can't rely on the data. But I, I just think it's too early to be knowing for sure. And I'm very suspicious that the New York Times and news media like that, they want that to be true because they want that to be the narrative. They are invested in that narrative and they will find any way to justify that narrative possible. New facts like the ones I've already uh, articulated to you and, and examined be damned. Now, the New York situation is obviously at the centerpiece of all this. I have said numerous times that fear of becoming New York City is driving everything, everything. It drives every decision all over this country and maybe in other parts of the world. No one wants to become New York City. And I have said continually, well, wait a minute. We all understand that New York City is an inherently unique place. There's only one New York City. The first people that will tell you that are New Yorkers. Uh, New Yorkers has a New York has a lot of great qualities and has some not so great qualities. And in this situation, there are a lot of reasons to believe they were particularly vulnerable to this set of circumstances, almost in a perfect storm way. And I have theorized multiple times that if you just use your common sense, you use Occam's razor. Well, what does New York City have that nobody else has? Well, obviously, density of population and an antiquated subway system that is used by an enormous percentage of the population of New York. And there was an MIT study that came out, and lo and behold, guess what? Concluded that there is a direct correlation between the subway system that's right, the subway system and the spread of coronavirus. Imagine that. Imagine that. Imagine that, that something so obvious and so common sense would end up being backed up by science. Now, this 
particular study was done by a guy by the name of Jeffrey Harris. Jeffrey Harris is a fascinating guy. I spoke to him for about 50 minutes yesterday. Uh, he's too busy to do an interview today because guess what? He's not just an economics professor at MIT. He also happens to be a doctor, a general practitioner here in the Los Angeles area who is working largely on coronavirus cases. So this guy could not be more perfectly suited to do a study about this situation. And the number one thing I got from Jeffrey Harris is this guy has zero agenda at all. Uh, he's obviously incredibly smart <laughs> to be a professor of economics at MIT as well as a general practitioner doctor. Uh, he is not coming at this from, from any perspective politically, uh, and he is very confident. He is very confident that while it's impossible to prove because we don't have uh, the kind of data that we would need to prove it, and therefore people are taking pot shots at his study, again, from a political perspective, because it's impossible to prove. The only way you could prove this for 100% certainty is to totally shut down the subway system of New York and see what happens, which, of course, New York is not going to do, largely because... New York is invested in the idea that the subway system is not why New York City has been a horror show. And it cannot be underestimated just how much New York City is dictating all of this in the rest of the country, not just as far as fear of New York, but as far as the numbers are concerned. I mean, if you look at the, the numbers of New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, and if you add in Massachusetts, which is nearby and which I'll get to shortly, if you add in those Four states, those are only 39 million people in those four states. They make up well over, I don't know what the percentage is at the moment, but it's well over 50% of all deaths. In fact, it might be way higher than 50% right now. And that's only, that's a relative, that's barely over 10% of our population. And if you somehow took New York City, which is a, obviously, uh, it is their tentacles that are, that are causing the problems in uh, New, New Jersey and Connecticut, maybe even Massachusetts, if you somehow made them into the normal range, the entire narrative about the impact of the virus here in America would be completely different. Our numbers would be much more in line with a bad flu season. Now they are not. They are way outside the realm of a bad flu, and they may end up being astronomically outside the, the realm of a bad flu, especially when you consider uh, how much we have tried to do to mitigate, although I'm not even 100% sure that the mitigation uh, is, is anywhere near uh, worth the damage that's being done, including from a medical perspective. So back to, to Jeffrey Harris, Professor Dr. Harris, uh, and I mentioned Massachusetts. So one of the things I talked to him about is, well, uh, Dr. Harris, you believe that, that the New York City subway system is the key to this. What's going on in Boston? Is it, is it just a coincidence that Boston has a subway system called the T that is remarkably similar to the New York City subway system and uh, is also very antiquated and is highly used? And he, without hesitation, said, yep, that makes a lot of sense. I don't have the time to do another study on this because I'm working with coronavirus patients here in Los Angeles. But he had no problem believing and talked in great detail about the similarities to the situation in Boston and the T and the New York City subway 
in New York. He also said something that didn't directly deal with the uh, subway situation that I found very interesting with regard to antibodies. He told me that he believes that part of the reason why a lot of people have the antibodies may not deal with COVID-19, but that it, based upon his experience as a doctor, and this is, I'm paraphrasing what he told, told me, uh, but I think it's a pretty good paraphrase, is that essentially it is possible that people have immunity to this because they had previous coronaviruses. So in other words, he called it cross-immunity. That if you had, let's say you had a, a, a bad uh, flu last year or even earlier this year, and, uh, and you know, it was, it was a, one of the older coronaviruses, that that might provide you with the antibodies and enough immunity for you not to have any real symptoms from this. And that that might be part of what we're seeing going on here, and that might be part of why for instance, parts of California might not be as vulnerable as other areas of the country and of the world. So I, I was very impressed by uh, Dr. Harris. I, I, I believe that his study is, is accurate, although it cannot be proven because we don't have the kind of data and there's no way that they're going to shut down the subway system yet. There was another aspect of this that I found also to be re really relevant. There have been numerous MTA, those are the people that work on the subway system, numerous MTA deaths. I believe it's in the 50s. I, I could be wrong, but something, something in that realm that uh, he believes has shifted. You know, the MTA's original reaction to this was this study is not accurate. It's not credible. It's not peer reviewed. Uh, this is just speculation. And now they've softened their tone because now all of a sudden they're seeing a lot of their employees die. This is another thing that, he, that Dr. Harris and I talked about, which is it's interesting to me that a lot of what we're seeing, whether it's in the subways, whether it's in factories, whether it's in nursing homes, whether it's in prisons, whether it's uh, in, in, all, in any, any situation where people are continually exposed, continually exposed to the virus, that's where it has by far its most impact. And I asked him about this theory that I have thought a lot about, which is that isn't it possible that what, the way this virus actually spreads is through continual over time or extreme exposure as opposed to quick casual exposure and he didn't obviously have enough information to come to conclusion but he said yeah that that is certainly possible and that makes sense and the subway theory would absolutely back that up because what happens on the subway the people on the take the subway in new york are taking it twice a day at least Every single day, they're in the same place, in the same atmosphere, exposed to the same, many of the same people. And that's why it has such an impact. That's why we've seen situations where, where people who work in the same place, that, and also, by the way, intra-family uh, uh, infections are very high. And that was part of the problem in Italy. These, so, in other words, it's not a situation where you say hi to somebody, uh, you know, uh, from five feet away and you get the virus. There has to be a, at least in a, to get it in a serious way, there has to be continual extreme exposure. That does not mean 
That does not mean it's not serious. That does not mean you don't take precautions. That doesn't mean you don't do things to mitigate. That means, though, that you have to, if you get new information like this, you need to allow that to adjust your decision making on how to handle it. Because we're doing all sorts of things that make no goddamn sense based upon what we now already know and are continuing to learn about the virus. One other thing about New York City that I want to mention, and and again, this is a narrative that I would love to be true. Uh, I don't know how actually true it is, but uh, New York City set up a a tattletale line for people to to rat out their neighbors for violating uh, social distancing. And uh, according to the New York Post, and this, I, it felt more anecdotal than an indication that this happened widely, but uh, their reporting was that the tattletale line got flooded with people sending penis pictures and uh, pictures of Hitler and, all, and the middle finger and all sorts of other uh, very, very angry uh, reactions, which I, I made, made, made my heart uh, warm a bit. I, I personally have I've called our own tattletale line uh, here in Southern California and left a, a similar voicemail uh, message. So I, I felt that that uh, I felt a kinship with the people of New York, and I hope that that's true. There's definitely some signs, at least the beginnings of a backlash here, that people are starting to get uh, too uh, awfully frustrated and starting to feel as if, okay, enough is enough. Uh, we did our part. We flattened the curve. The healthcare system is is more than prepared now for a, a surge. That's what you told us what the deal was. Uh, stop, stop restricting our lives in such dramatic fashions. And there have been some protests across the country. Uh, Donald Trump, who continues to change his position almost daily. He's making it up as he goes and not. Has been somewhat supportive of these protests, as have some of, of those people around him. You look, I am, I'm actually part of, of a group that is trying to protest some of the things being done here in Southern California. So I am philosophically 100% on board. I don't know how helpful they are, though, from a public relations standpoint, because, frankly, when I see these protests, first of all, this is a this is a very, very difficult subject to protest. One, because you look like you're in favor of death. That's number one. That's the biggest problem. And that's been the biggest problem since day one. There's only been two sides of this story. Either you're anti-death or you're or you're pro-death. You're either against the virus or you're in favor of the virus. And that's absurd. I mean, it's absolutely asinine. It's just flat out ridiculous. But that's the narrative. And so people like me who are trying to, to, to provide some perspective and some common sense, we get attacked as being anti-science, pro-virus, and pro-death. None of which is true, but that's impossible to combat. So the first problem with the protests is they look like they're pro-death, and even some of the signs from these morons uh, and some of them are morons, although I'm sure that you know most of them are, are, are good people who, who really think that they're defending their rights. Uh, but some of these signs, which, of course, the media will focus on, are, are really stupid and do appear to be pro-death. The other element of this is it really looks like a reunion of the old Tea Party. Uh, the Tea Party people that came out against Barack Obama and whoever, you know, the, the, the remnants of what's ever left of those people after they've been betrayed by the Republican Party and Donald Trump for three or four years. Th- this was the group of people who back in the Obama years thought we were spending too much money and becoming a socialist country. And, uh, you know, they, they put on their colonial uh, outfits and waved their American flags and 
and uh, this was the Tea Party, and this was what was given credit for midterm election victories by the Republican Party against Barack Obama. I, I, I've never, I've always been skeptical of that narrative. Uh, I never understood how these people could just all of a sudden come out of the woodwork. Uh, I mean, having spoken at a lot of uh, Tea Party events back when I was still considered to be a, a good conservative because Donald Trump hadn't come along yet. My view of the Tea Party was always that this was essentially this came about because uh, older conservatives finally learned how to use email and Facebook. That's essentially what happened. Uh, that in, in, tw- in 20, uh, 2009, 2010, we had a lot of pissed off old white people who figured out how to communicate via email and Facebook. And that that's what caused the Tea Party. I, I never felt like these were new people or new voters who were suddenly coming to the conclusion that the Constitution mattered. But there were a lot of people who made a lot of money off of the Tea Party. And it feels like a lot of these protests are leftover from the Tea Party. Again, I agree with them. Um, but I, I have a problem with the, with the PR. It's, it's a very, very difficult set of circumstances, especially when inherently when you're protesting, you're breaking social distancing guidelines. It's almost impossible to put on a, a good protest because uh, obviously the first thing people are going to wonder is, all right, how many people showed up? Well, your crowd is is going to be dictated by how thick it looks. And if it's a thick looking crowd, uh, then you're breaking social distancing. So you're inherently you're inherently in a very, very difficult position. There is this emerging battle, though, which I predicted. This is another vindication, I believe, of what I told you was going to happen here. There is no question there is an emerging battle between red state governors and blue state governors, Republican governors and Democratic governors. And you now even have Bill Barr, the attorney general, whom I loathe because of his handling of the whole Russia investigation. By the way, it should be pointed out that the Senate Intelligence Committee— The Senate Intelligence Committee, which is run by Republicans, came out two days ago and confirmed, yes, it was, in fact, Russia who tried to influence the 2016 election on behalf of Donald Trump. Correct. Uh, But, uh, you know, I guess we're we're, that's old news. Uh, I'm not going to get into that. Uh, But that's the Republican Senate Intelligence Committee. So don't give me any more bull crap about deep state and coups and, uh, you know, uh, the election, uh, you know, somehow uh, being attempted to be stolen from Donald Trump. It's all bullshit. It's all bullshit. Uh, And the Republican Senate Intelligence Committee uh, has proven that. But back to Bill Barr, you got Bill Barr now threatening essentially Democratic governors who do not move quickly enough to open up their economies. Now, I don't know what legal authority he thinks he has. The hilarity of this, if there's a funny element to all of it, will be if he tries to do this, and of course then the first thing that's going to happen is the Democratic governors are going to go to the courts, right? They're going to say, wait a minute, you don't have the authority as Attorney General of the United States to tell the states what they can do, uh, at least not in this way. So they're going to start to appeal it in federal court. Well, now we're going to get to see all these new Trump judges who are conservatives and at least in theory believe in states' rights and federalism <laughs> rebuking the, the attempt by Trump's attorney general to get Democratic governors to reopen their economies and their lives. I mean, it's going to be bizarre, but that's a very likely scenario in all this. And we can now add several red states 
to the list of states that the media is at least secretly, if not openly, going to be rooting for deaths in. South Carolina is going to open up. Georgia is going to open up. Tennessee is going to open up. Ohio uh, is going to open up. Uh, all of them are run by Republican governors. Apparently, Colorado is also uh, going to be opening up as well. It will be very interesting to see how those states do. I have no idea. I do know this. The media will be looking with a microscope for data to prove that they opened up too early and that they are now more vulnerable to an explosion of coronavirus cases and deaths. And unfortunately, and I've warned about this from the beginning, the data here is so bad, so unreliable, has such a lag to it, the media is always, always going to be able to find something to latch on to, to substantiate whatever narrative they want. And so this red state, blue state divide that I predicted is happening in spades, And it's going to really be dictated a lot by just what the data over the next few weeks in those states is. I fear that that data will be cherry picked. I don't know what's going to happen. Is it possible that they will have an increase in cases? Yes, absolutely. But guess what? The original deal here was flatten the curve, not end all death. Ending all death is not, unfortunately, an option here without a major medical breakthrough, which does not seem to be imminent. So they're, they're, that's not an option. So the, only, the option we have right now is, do we end all life uh, as we know it in an effort to try to maybe protect a few lives in the short run? And I don't even know how many of those lives we're really saving. That, that's something that eventually we're going to, I don't know if we'll ever know for sure. Uh, and th- that will be agenda-driven as well. People will determine what that number is based upon their own narrative. <clears throat> there are some people who are very credible and experts in this who believe that what we're doing may have no impact at all, that the virus has a mind of its own, the virus is going to do what the virus is going to do, and that the, the amount of mitigation we're doing is minimal. I don't know whether that's ca- the case or not. I just know that we're making almost every decision in the worst possible way. We've made decisions based on panic, based upon extrapolation, uh, based upon fears of exponential growth and fears of New York City being everywhere else in the country that are not based in logic, not based in fact, and we're not really shifting course now that we get more information. And I think it's tragic. I think we've handled this horrendously in every possible way, and Donald Trump has handled this horrendously in every possible way. But you know what the most bizarre part of this whole thing from a political standpoint is? As badly as he has done, I am now seeing the narrative that this could actually help his reelection bid become more and more clear. Correct. It's insane. It's absurd. Uh, we have, we've never had a situation where a, a president has less of an argument that he made America greater <laughs> during his term uh, than, than with Donald Trump. And, yet, and I'm not predicting he's going to be reelected. I'm still not even above 50 percent. Uh, that he's going to be reelected. Uh, but the chances of his reelection are inching up. Uh, the, the stock market keeps going up and down. Uh, who knows? I think there's still going to be a lot of economic hurdles to go. We're nowhere near out of the woods from a medical standpoint, an economic standpoint. But I now think that he is going to be able to create a narrative where he has people to blame, that he has Democratic governors to blame, that he has specifically Governor Gavin Newsom here in California to blame for all sorts of things, including maybe even 
they're not being football this year. And if there's not football, that means that there's not going to be anything for the rest of the winter. I wrote a very extensive column for Mediate, which you can find at our Twitter page, which is at individual one pie, which I hope you'll check out, which outlines this scenario where Trump actually gets helped by the the overplaying of the hand by Democratic governors, specifically the governor of the, the, the most populous and wealthiest state here in the United States of America, which is California, and Governor Gavin Newsom, who my seven-year-old daughter has now come to refer to as Governor Poosom. That's a fact. That's really true. <laughs> she, she, on her own, has decided that Governor Newsom is actually Governor Poosom. Uh, And I uh, have applauded that and uh, absolutely agree with that uh, sentiment because I think he has handled this horrifically. Yet in public perception, everyone thinks he's done an amazing job because no one wants to go back to revisit the original narrative. As I've already stated uh, earlier in the podcast, there's now a mountain of growing evidence that California is exactly the opposite of uh, what we were told and that Gavin Newsom, in all likelihood, shut us down late and that his shutdown has been excessive and that it has not done anywhere near as much good as the damage that it has created and will continue to create because now he's invested in it. He's invested in it. He can't go back now because if he goes back now and nothing horrible happens, then he's a jackass and some people will actually figure it out. The media won't figure it out, but a lot of citizens might actually figure out that their lives have been destroyed for two months and their jobs have been lost and our economy has been uh, destroyed and our kids have been out of school uh, and will be out of school for many, many months, all for something that didn't have to be this way. And so he's invested in the in the shutdown. And that's why the shutdown will continue here in California. And I think that's going to help Trump, depending on how everything else turns out. And then you got Joe Biden, whose fitness for office seems to deteriorate almost on a daily, if not weekly basis. I, I spoke to someone who knows Joe Biden well, has known him for many decades, who is not a conservative, who believes that there's something wrong with Joe Biden, that it's not just old age, that this I'm not to this point yet, but he's going to have a very difficult time uh, getting through a, a debate with Donald Trump. I mean, Donald Trump is a moron. He's not that great a debater. But uh, I'm not sure that Joe Biden is going to do particularly well in that uh, situation. Hillary Clinton did really well, and it didn't help her. She lost. Uh, And Joe Biden is not going to do as well as Hillary Clinton did. Now, who knows how much that still has an impact. And again, there is still a, a very, very, very real chance that this coronavirus thing is such a disaster that Trump can't possibly overcome it. I'm not discounting that. I'm just telling you that there is an emerging narrative that allows Donald Trump to somehow, some way, get reelected, largely because the Democratic Party is completely and totally overplaying their hand in a way that is scaring the crap out of normal, average, everyday Americans, the kind of votes that Joe Biden was nominated in which to get, and which I don't think he's going to be able to get, especially in key states. We'll talk about this in, in, in a future episode, but it's amazing how this virus is almost... I'm not I'm I'm not even going to say designed to help Trump's reelection. But when you look at it, where it's having the greatest impact and the least impact and where the governors are overstepping their bounds it is almost perfectly designed from an electoral college standpoint, with a couple of minor exceptions for Donald Trump to be reelected. Now, with all that said, I still think it's below 50 percent. And as usual, we end each episode with an update on that number. I'm going to put the number at 40 percent chance as of today. 
that Donald Trump is in fact reelected. Again, please no wagering and please keep your social distance. Uh, that'll do it for this edition of the program. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. Follow us on Twitter at individual the number one pod. That's at individual the number one pod. Until next week, my name is John Ziegler. You're listening to the Global Story Network.